Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. My name is Dr. Training Wheels. I'm a typical Melbourneian, and I'm sorry to do it, but I have to complain about the weather. <laughs> it was so cold. I couldn't believe it. My house is so nice and cosy. I didn't put a singlet on. I stepped outside and I felt like I was about to die. <laughs> and I looked at my phone and it said it was nine, but it feels like two. Well, I'm heading up to Marimbula tomorrow oh. and it's zero degrees overnight up there. So oh, I, I was about to say I'm myself. jealous. At least the days will be warmer though, yeah, right? Yeah, 17 to 18. I'm Dr. Training Wheels and you can hear Miss Perineum yes, in morning, the everyone. studio here with me. And we've also got Dr. Moto who's furiously pressing buttons and sliding dials. <laughs> How are you, Dr. Moto? I'm really good, thank you. It was a bit um, chilly this morning, but uh, I was on my moto and I was rugged up and uh, nothing like heated grips. I can't yeah. believe the these luxury. Are, these, that's motorcycle handlebar heated grips. Amazing. It's beautiful. That yeah. is really special. I'm very thrilled to be here in the studio with you two and our lovely listeners this morning. It feels like it's been a while, but the months, they kind of just rush by, don't they? They do indeed. We've got an exciting show lined up for you. As I said, we've got Miss Perineum and Dr Moto in the studio this morning. And we've also got a very special guest joining us over the phone a little bit later in the hour. That's Associate Professor Dion Stubb, who's a cardiologist, because it is Heart Failure Awareness Week. Mm. We've caught it on the last day today. Mm. So Associate Professor Stubb is going to have a chat with us about how we should look after our hearts. We love that. But first, let's get into some news. I think Dr Moto and Miss Perry Neam have got some news items to share with us. Let's do it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Alrighty, I think it's my turn to start this week. Do it. How um, are you, Ms. I'm Perry good. I'm very good. good. I, life is mildly chaotic, uh, mainly because I've just come back from the National Conference on Incontinence and the Functional Urology Society National conference week which was very fun you can't say it three times fast I promise you but <laughs> it's um it happens to also be national continence week so oh. they cross over with heart failure which heart is... failure pelvic floor failure yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you know there's lots of things but I am really passionate about this particular issue and having come back from the conference there were so many amazing presenters there from all different walks of and teams that treat continents from continent nurses to physios to urologists to GPs and it just highlighted to me how burdensome this issue is in our society like most people don't realize it's but not something that we talk about no and there's a lot of shame associated but but there's five million Australians suffering with incontinence holy moly it's a big number that's massive it's huge and that's hang on aren't there only like 20 something million yeah it's one in four of people over the age of 15 in australia suffer with incontinence yeah at wow. some point in their life is that urinary and fecal or Mo- yeah 
urinary and fecal, but 80% of people will experience um, urinary incontinence are women, but there's, it's mostly urinary. Okay. But 1.34 million Australian boys and men experience incontinence as well. Holy moly. Yeah. And there's lots of initiatives because for a really long time that was completely disregarded. And so um, Dr. Moda might experience this, but for a really long time, there were no bins in men's bathrooms and so it was really shameful because if they were using incontinence products they had nowhere to throw them out which Mm. is really challenging um but 46 percent of people who experience incontinence are under the age of 50. Wow so it's not just an old person thing and I mean even if it was just an old person thing it's still important I don't mean to dismiss that but it's everybody yeah it's everybody it it really does and even if it isn't for every stage of your life it can affect you at different stages I've just had a baby but like one in three women who have had a a baby be it via vaginal or c-section will experience incontinence as part of that process and can attest to that just too much information yeah, yeah but like it's 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 common it doesn't mean it's normal I think that's the one thing that I I always say to my patients is just because something is really common doesn't mean it's normal and that you should just deal with it okay tell us a bit more about that what can people do so incontinence can be treated in a number of different ways the the best point of call to start with is with your GP Um, physios can deal with the physical components of incontinence so things like the pelvic floor if you've got symptoms of prolapse for men often it's related to prostate issues we can treat with that as well in terms of managing how you urinate and and talking about sort of containment and things that can help um, make life a bit easier if you've got incontinence issues and there's also pediatric continence physios so for children who are bedwetting or wetting themselves at school toileting an issue um that there are help there's help there the other thing to consider are continence nurses who are doing an amazing job of dealing with the financial ramifications and things like that that continence brings so providing the right kind of continence products setting you up on a plan whether that's with the ndis or other things like that because it's costly to deal with Mm. it and um you know there's a big burden of of what that looks like in someone's life if they're dealing with this for a really long period of time. And mm. and the stats are saying that they're dealing with it for if we're living to 90, you could be dealing with incontinence for un, over 30 years, 40 years of your life. Mm, wow. So don't think that just because it's common, it's normal and that it's not treatable. Go and see your GP. I think that's my message. Is Thanks, if, you're, if you're dealing with it, get it looked at. Yeah, I remember um, learning about a really inspiring story, just to your point, um, uh, uh, Ms. Perineum, about, mm. um, you know, this is not an old person issue. This is not an old um, person's issue for our women, but um, I was, you know, learning this really inspiring story about a, a Melbourne mum of four who, while training for a marathon, realised that this is an issue. You know, yeah. she is obviously a you know, woman of childbearing age and um, she um, went on to design and um, start up a company called Modi Body. Oh, yeah, I yes. use it a lot with my, um, most people know it as period undies, but it's actually was initially designed as an incontinence product, which is pretty amazing. I saw something in the news this week to Dr. Yana Pittman, who people Correct might remember the yeah. Olympic hurdler and she's now a mum of five I think and six six yeah oh, wow strange to be an and OBGYN to be yeah that's right obstetrician gynecologist and she shared her experience with incontinence and how yeah. when she was training and racing in the Olympics she would spray water on herself intentionally to disguise the fact that she'd actually wet herself during yeah. every race yep. um, and how you know passionate she is about 
being outspoken, but then also helping helping people get the help they need and um, sort of destigmatizing it a bit. I think. Yeah, so. it's it's one of those things that it can be treated via physical or conservative management. There are medications as well to help lessen the burden, and so don't don't sit on it. Like you can actually really change someone's life and the quality of life that they lead if if we're dealing with these issues head on rather than just ignoring them because they are a bit uncomfortable to talk about sometimes. Thanks, Miss Perineum. That's a great, great topic. Yeah. Dr. Modo, you've got something I think you'd like to talk about. Is that right? Yes, I have a spruik for uh, something that, you know, that is very close to my heart and um, many people, uh, many listeners to the show um, is also um, familiar with one of our um, team members, Cyber Sue, who isn't with us today, but uh, both Cyber Sue and I are members of this charity motorcycle club. Yeah. Can I say that in the one sentence? You're a gang. You're a gang. <laughs> no, we're a, we're a motorcycle <laughs> charity. That's a euphemism if ever things. I heard one. You're a motorcycle gang, the most ruthless of all that I've ever come across. <laughs> the, the listeners can't see my patches. So um, over uh, uh, 2020, during our um, COVID lockdown, um, uh, we devised a round the you know, a, a, a ride around the map, if you'd like, a round Australia circumnavigation trip. Um, and um, along the way, we had a professional camera crew and um, filmed a documentary. Um, and the documentary is called How Are You Travelling? Mm-hmm. And I'm very pleased to share that uh, it was um, a official selection at the upcoming Melbourne um, documentary film festival mm. um, it is going to be on at the um, at cinema nova uh, in carlton um, on saturday the 29th of july can you at- tell us about the charity mojo what's the absolutely so um, the charity is called sykes on bikes and it's a volunteer group of psychiatrists psychologists mental health professionals um, and we go on uh, these motorcycle rides to regional areas to do several things um, promote mental health promote general health care we particularly uh, pay attention to um, people who might not be able to um, access um, health care or might not have caught up with their gps for a while Um, a lot of the time these are men um, unfortunately, so we do also place a bit of an emphasis on men's health. You know, we do uh, blood pressure checks. We do sort of, you know, waist circumference. Um, we do blood pressure checks because a lot of the time these people haven't been to see a health professional for, you know, many years. And, um, you know, they might have a GP that they can only only nominate by name, but they haven't sort of um, um, been for regular checkups. So we sort of provide that um, free body and health check, uh, body and head check, if you'd like. Mm. And um, this uh, upcoming uh, documentary um, uh, documents um, in uh, videography uh, this um, big ride that was completed in 2000 where um, I think about just over a dozen people um, went uh, for a ride around Australia and um, travelled over 40,000 kilometres, which is equivalent to the circumference of the equator. Wow! And um, along the way, they, you know, visited um, many outback communities. Um, They stopped and um, stayed at, you know, a couple of those, you know, those huge cattle stations Mm. in sort of outback Queensland where, you know, you probably need a a, a one-hour flight to get from one end of the property to the other, you know, and they've got people sort of staying on site, sleeping on site, you know, that's sort of their community for, you know, months if not years and years 
Um, and uh, it's a really uh, good opportunity, a rare opportunity as well to, you know, um, get a sense of what life is like living in those um, communities, um, working and living within their ranches and um, um, and uh, some of the trials and tribulations um, they uh, come across. And, um, yeah, I really encourage people to get amongst it and um, check out the documentary. On uh, 29th of July at Cinema Nova. Um, the website is obviously cinemanova.com.au. My question is, are you a star? And do you get, you know, is there a moto, moto moments in this, <laughs> in this documentary? <laughs> I, I'm ashamed to say that I... Um, didn't have the uh, necessary amount of leave to go for a big <laughs> ride around the map, Fair do a enough. lap Fair of enough. the map. Um, but um, our good friend and um, celebrity, A-lister, Cyber Sue, mm. is actually in that um, documentary. Oh, she features. Yes. So, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it'd be really, really good. Thanks, Dr. Moto. I've got another little plug too, um, just briefly. The inaugural Asia-Pacific Conference on Women's Mental Health is happening this year on the 11th to the 13th of October at the Langham and full disclosure I work at her Centre Australia so does Dr Moto um the but the conference is going to be amazing it's the uh this is how it's described on the website is that at the inaugural Asia Pacific Conference on Women's Mental Health you won't just passively listen to panels you'll get real world tools knowledge and experience to help shape the future of women's mental health we're bringing together some of the world's leading researchers, academics, educators and advocates to explore women's mental health through the life stages to examine the impacts of trauma, reproductive health, cultural factors, menopause and more across the lifespan. Um, abstract submissions are open and early bird registration is open too. The website is APWMH Conference. That's Asia Pacific Women's Mental Health Conference.org.au. Um, so check it out and please do register. And if you happen to have an abstract lying around, shoot mm -hmm. it through because the more the merrier. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. We've got Associate Professor Dion Stubb joining us over the phone this morning. Associate Professor Stubb is a cardiologist with special interest in interventional procedures such as minimally invasive valve replacements as well as cardiac emergencies, including heart attacks, also known as myocardial infarctions, and cardiac arrest. Dion has published over 65 peer-reviewed manuscripts and has been internationally recognised for his research. He's an associate professor with Monash University and Baker IDI Heart and Diabetes Institute, medical advisor to Ambulance Victoria, and representative on Australia Resuscitation Council. Associate Professor Stubb also sits on the Medical Advisory Board for Hearts for Heart, a health promotion charity helping Australians to put hearts first. He joins us on the phone this morning at the end of Heart Failure Awareness Week, the last day, I believe, of Heart Failure Awareness Week, and we're so happy to have you, Dion. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for the really gracious introduction. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Happy to chat to you about heart failure. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought we might just start with the basics because heart failure is a term that people in the medical profession understand and know well, but I think it's something that can be misunderstood in the general public. Could you explain to us what exactly heart failure is? So heart failure is a really common heart problem and um, 
a type of cardiovascular disease and it impacts over 1 million Australians. Heart failure really does not discriminate. It impacts any age, gender or, and ethnicity and is really becoming uh, more common and sort of one of the, the modern heart epidemics. And really, unfortunately, every day, heart failure claims the lives of over eight Australians mm. and, really, and, it, and is the number one cause of hospitalisation in people over 65 years of age. So I think that Heart for Heart's campaign of raising heart failure awareness and we're coming to the end of the heart failure awareness is really important for healthy hearts and what they can do to prevent heart failure and, and then if you do have it, how to treat it. And we have some fantastic treatments. That's a really good introduction. Thank you. And I agree, it is super important for us to be talking about and not surprising as a, as a junior doctor that it's the most common cause of hospitalisation because we see it all the time. Something that I've um, struggled with as a junior doctor is explaining to someone what it is when they have heart failure because I think the, the word... People might mix it up with a heart attack or cardiac arrest, whereas heart failure is a little bit more subtle than that. Associate Professor Stubb, could you tell us what's your spiel when you're telling someone they've got heart failure? Yeah, so, so our heart is really a sophisticated pump that's designed to pump blood around the rest of the body, providing um, the body with blood, oxygen and nutrients. And so if we think of when that pump, pump or the heart becomes sick or when we think the heart is failing, there are real two main reasons for the heart to fail. The first reason is the pump becomes weak and the heart can't push enough blood around the body and we call that systolic heart failure or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And then the other main cause is the pump becomes stiff and you develop a thick heart and the the pump can't draw enough blood in into the heart and therefore it can't pump the blood to the rest of the body and then that's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or diastolic heart failure. So it's really a weak pump where it's not working as well as it should and not pumping strong enough or the pump doesn't relax as well and doesn't let enough blood in. And really if we think about the million Australians that have heart failure, it's split about 50-50 as to which type of heart failure they have. That's a great description. Thank you. That's why you're a cardiologist and I'm not. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, just to simplify things for our listeners, the consequences there of your heart, if it's not pumping properly, is that you can't get enough of that blood, oxygen and nutrients around where it needs to get to in your body. So it can make you tired. It can stop your organs working properly. Um, you end up with a bit of fluid staying where it shouldn't be in your lungs and often in your legs and other parts of the body. Um, so it can be a really debilitating condition. I'm wondering, Associate Professor Stubb, could you tell us about why it happens? What causes it? Yeah, I suppose the first thing you were hinting at is, is the symptoms. And the symptoms can be dramatic, but equally they can also be pretty subtle in mm. the beginning. And that's potentially why we miss a lot of the early um, stages of heart failure. And so the, the early symptoms may just be fatigue, some mild shortness of breath, and people um, can put that down to just being unfit or uh, with our older Australians can just be, the, they put it down to the symptoms of getting older. But they're two classic symptoms. And then, as you said, you can have leg swelling, uh, trouble with sleeping at night, and in particular needing more pillows in your bed, a chronic cough. And sometimes we get people that come in and say they've been diagnosed with asthma where they've never had asthma their whole 
life, and that's uh, where we're mistaking it for heart failure. Cough and shortness of breath is heart failure rather than asthma, and then other more subtle symptoms like loss of appetite can all be a sign that the heart is failing. And so then if we were thinking about why that happens, uh, and again, really important when it comes down to recognition and prevention, the, the, the big reasons are high blood pressure, and I get told all the time by my patients, Doc, I only have a little bit of blood pressure. It's not a problem. Mm. So I say, you only want a little bit of heart failure or you only want a little stroke. Um, and so high blood pressure is classic and really important that we manage. And then other issues around um, obesity, diabetes, the other key cause is narrowing of the heart arteries or coronary heart disease. And so that can be a, a chronic issue or it can also be an acute issue that causes a heart attack and then subsequent heart failure. And then other key causes are whether valves of the heart don't work properly or valvular heart disease. And again, we, 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 Heart for Hearts has done a lot of recognition around missed valvular heart disease because there's a ready fix for that, which can be valve replacement. And then other causes are problems with the rhythm of the heart or arrhythmias, and the commonest being atrial fibrillation. And then, you know, you know we spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about viruses and how they impact the heart and they can cause myocarditis and subsequent heart failure and then people can be born with um, congenital abnormalities leading to heart failure as well. So there is a very long list of all, all various causes that can impact the heart and ultimately cause heart failure. And that's important for, you know, your one, to recognise the issue and then the GP and potentially cardiologist to essentially work through the problem. And it's it's based on what you've said there, it's quite a complex problem. It can have complex causes. So there's, I suppose, no surprise that it's perhaps under-recognised and, and misunderstood in the public. Miss Perineum's got a question for you. Yeah, Professor Stubbs, I was just curious. Um, Professor Stubbs, can you explain who you're talking about in terms of your demographic of heart failure patients. Is this something that's just affecting older individuals or do you see it across the lifespans? Um, yeah, maybe for the interview, Dion's great. Um, you guys have funny names, so I can go back to Dion. Yeah, I suppose on the one hand, it, it's important that the heart failure truly doesn't discriminate. It, it, it can impact any age. It can, you know, it impacts any gender and ethnicity and is becoming more common. So I think that's a big message, that if you do have those concerning symptoms, it, you know, it, it can unfortunately impact young Australians. And, you know, where I work at the Alfred, we see people coming in with um, the sickest of heart failures, and that can be, you know, 18, 20-year-olds with, you know, fulminant and sudden severe viral myocarditis, uh, you know, where they're needing urgent mechanical support. But, you know, the, the most um, common population are really those over 65 years of age. And that's, as we were talking about before, is really the number one cause of a reason for a, a person over 65 years of age to need to go to hospital is because of heart failure. Mm. But is I it, think the broad it, message is it can impact anybody. Is it a condition that can be treated or reversed? Is this something that's curable? Absolutely. You know, the cardiovascular communities, it's one of the, the great success stories of modern medicine. Maybe outside of penicillin, we've really made enormous strides in both coronary heart disease and heart failure. And in particular, if we think about systolic heart failure or where the heart 
um, becomes weak as a pump, we really have now a significant both, if I'm thinking about treatment, we have um, non-pharmacological therapies where we, we have good lifestyle measures and um, cardiac rehabilitation and exercise programs, and then we have um, fantastic um, medications or pharmacological therapy, and we think about the, these four pillars where four key classes of drugs, and that's a really important thing that we spend a lot of time talking to patients, uh, that medicines are essential and form the backbone of management of systolic heart failure. And with these four types of drugs, one can take someone with you know, a, a really completely failing heart to almost normalising their heart function, which is, is one of the, the great advances we've made in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And then we have procedures, depending on the cause of the heart failure. So that can be with pacemaker and other fancy devices such as defibrillators or resynchronisation of the heart. For people with narrowings, we have stents and bypass surgery. And um, for rhythm issues, my electrophysiology colleagues have um, fantastic ablation therapies that can fix rhythm problems. And then for the most sick um, types of heart failure or the advanced stages of heart failure, there are then sophisticated devices such as mechanical hearts and even heart transplantation. So. I suppose one of the key messages is with early recognition, we have a, you know the full complement of therapies that, that can dramatically uh, change someone's trajectory, aiming to improve quality of life, keep people out of hospital and extend their life and improve mortality. Yeah, that's really interesting, Dion. I, I guess I'm a physio, so I see lots of people coming in that are interested in physical health. Are there things that people can do that are preventative in terms of reducing their risks for heart failure, lifestyle modifications that can help sort of reduce your risk of developing? Yeah, I think absolutely. The you know the the common the common things about you know avoiding a sedentary lifestyle, so just you know basic basic things and getting out, going for a twenty to thirty minute walk doesn't have to be whilst we you know whilst we we like sophisticated gym routines and and other forms of exercise keeping it simple even for, in particular for people who don't do a lot of exercise and just going for a 20 to 30 minute walk you know three to four times a week uh, can be fantastically beneficial it's good for mental health but it's also good um, for cardiovascular health and you know staying trim uh, avoiding um, obesity and then the problems of obesity with the metabolic syndrome which you know includes diabetes high blood pressure and then you, you sort of set yourself up for a, a whole complement of risk factors that, that can lead to heart failure so I think that's really important they're the lifestyle me messages the other almost exact opposite or the flip side to that conversation is we I do have a whole series of very fit patients who do everything right mm. their whole lives they exercise well they're extremely fit but then they still get heart failure and so that they and then they look at you really with devastation saying you know how did this happen to me and then there is that concept there's a difference between being fit and having a healthy heart and so you can still be do all the right things and still develop narrowings in the arteries because of you know, the genetics of the way you process cholesterol or you're born with a congenital valvular heart problem. And so you can do everything right and still get heart failure. And so the lifestyle measures are crucial, but it's sort of, you really need to look at sort of individual risk stratification. And we have fantastic modern tests uh, so that we can pick that up very early on in someone's disease course. Dion, it's uh, Dr. Mo 
Theon, it's uh, Dr. Moto here. Um, do you mind if we just uh, stay on this point a little bit? Because I'm really intrigued. So you're saying that, you know, some people who are, you know, healthy BMI, healthy diet, but because of genetic risks or underlying ischemic heart disease, coronary artery plaque buildup, they has, still have these risk factors for heart failure. Can you just speak to this a little bit more and maybe explain to our listeners, you know, um, in what other instances might there be insidious heart failure in people who are, you know, like I said, um, healthy BMIs and um, very fit and healthy cardiovascular-wise? Yeah, I think that's a really important concept. On the one hand, I'm massively in favour of promoting the, the message of healthy lifestyle being fantastic at reducing cardiovascular disease and improved fitness, diet, Mediterranean diet um, has has great evidence of um, preventing cardiovascular disease and heart failure and is really important both for your heart health, your mental health and you know even uh, preventing cancers. But it's really important to know that despite doing everything right, there, there are a whole series of patients who will develop heart problems, both heart failure and coronary artery disease and arrhythmias and valvular heart disease through, through no fault of their own. And this concept that it's purely a lifestyle disease is wrong and potentially dangerous because it, it means we're missing a whole series of patients. And, you know, every week I'm looking after patients who their very first cardiovascular symptom is potentially a, a massive heart attack or cardiac arrest. And that's, and, and that's a real shame. And I think we can do better with regards to early recognition. But would it still be fair to uh, presume that those patients are perhaps in the minority and the majority of your patients are, you know, people with sort of identified cardiovascular risks as we've talked about? Absolutely. So there's no question that the, the big risk factors are, you know, we can't change getting older, um, but then other things around sedentary lifestyle, high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, smoking... Um, you know, other stimulant drugs are, are, are really harmful, um, are significant causes. But yeah, but, but there's definitely a growing recognition that we that we have a whole group of patients who don't have recognisable cardiovascular risk factors. We almost call them smurfless patients, um, and that we, we can get better. So seeing your GP, and that's why the Heart Foundation's healthy heart checks. You know, essentially for everyone over 45 or if you have other risk factors is really important because it, it can just be that you have unrecognised high blood pressure and that you think you're really fit but you're running around for years with high blood pressure and ultimately that leads to cardiovascular disease. I, I know Ms Perineum's chomping at the bits to ask one more question but I'm going to sneak one more in um, <laughs> because uh, still in this same vein pardon the pun, um, uh, Dion, uh, what, what, how do patients first present? Like, what are the early symptoms? What are the early warning signs? Like do they come in sort of, you know, getting um, breathless after a quick walk or, you know, do they find they can't lie flat on bed anymore and, and you know, without sort of feeling like they're suffocating? Or uh, do a lot of people first present insidiously, like, you know, this is a condition that's masqueraded by a bunch of other things or they present with another complaint and it's only incidentally that you find that they have um, heart failure of either type that you outlined for us? So, so it can be dramatic. So, you, you know, unfortunately, there's still 
You know, we know up to 10, 20% of patients, their first presentation with heart disease can be, you know, the, the, the most devastating, which is where the heart stops, you have a cardiac arrest collapse or a massive heart attack. But we've done a lot of studies in, in, in even younger patients with heart attacks. And even in those patients or, or those with cardiac arrest, where the, the ones that survive and we talk to them about their symptoms over the six months preceding, the body often does give you warnings. And the trouble is that the warning signs or symptoms are often mistaken for something not heart-related. And it can be as subtle as feeling more fatigued and everyone's busy life is stressful. And so that concept of just being a bit more tired or more unfit this year compared to last year can just be put down to, to the stresses of life or getting older. But that is one of the very early signs of heart failure. And then, uh, so fatigue's the big one, then shortness of breath. So just, you know, you used to be able to walk up your, your local hill to your milk bar or to, the let, or, or to the letterbox and then you're suddenly getting puffed up that hill or even activities of daily living are starting to puff you out. That's a very common sign that potentially you're developing heart failure. And then other signs are, as we were talking about before, at night you may have need more pillows to sleep on, you may be coughing more than you were before, leg swelling, um, you're off your, or, or some swelling around the abdomen and being off your food and, and loss of appetite uh, are all signs um, and symptoms that your, your heart potentially needs um, attention. Dion, when someone has those more subtle signs and symptoms of heart failure that perhaps could be, you know, easily dismissed as just getting older or having a busy lifestyle or whatever else, being a bit tired, a little bit short of breath, but nothing really to write home about... If someone is sort of proactive enough that they go to the GP to have it checked out, are our diagnostic tests good enough? Do we pick it up at that, those early stages? Yeah, absolutely. If, you know, I, I can't stress enough the importance of, you know, the rule with my younger patients, are, um, and it may be a, a bit less relevant now that we're all moving to electric vehicles, but every time you service your car, you have to be putting a, an appointment in to see your GP. You can't be looking after your motor vehicle more than you're looking after your body. <laughs> but, go, but going to your GP twice a year, getting a heart check, getting your blood pressure checked, having the GP auscultate, listening for a heart murmur, listening to the lungs are really very important. And then there are some really basic investigations. You can begin with an electrocardiogram or an ECG of the heart to look at the rhythm, um, chest X-ray to look at um, the heart size and whether there's any fluid on the lungs. And then the ultimate test is an ultrasound or echocardiogram of the heart, which really um, picks up um, essentially all the problems we've been discussing. It looks at the heart pump, it looks at the valves, it looks at the pressures inside the heart. And that's really, if we're worried about heart failure, the echocardiogram or ultrasound of a heart is a non-invasive, no radiation involved. It's really, it's an ultrasound, much like a, a, a woman would have during a pregnancy, but it focuses on the heart. And within, you know, a 30-minute test, you rapidly diagnose that there may be a problem. Dion, I think that's a really good note for us to end on. Thank you so much for your time this morning and just reiterating to everybody that every time you get your car serviced, you should get your body serviced too. And Amen. I would say it's a good idea to get your brain serviced as well. <laughs> It's all important stuff. Associate Professor Dion Stubb, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you talk about Heart Failure Awareness Week. We're going to go to another song now, which is continuing on our heart failure theme, and we'll be back with radiotherapy shortly. Thanks a lot, guys. Really important issue. Really happy to talk about it. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. I'm going to have a bit of a chat about something I came across in the news this morning that I thought was pretty juicy and ripe for discussion. Mm. Um, in a previous life, I was a bit of a bioethics nut, so I can't help myself when I come across these things. In undergrad, I did a lot of ethics and bioethics. Um, I saw an article in the conversation that was titled, Scientists have created synthetic human embryos. Now we must consider the ethical and moral quandaries. Mm. It was a great article. It's worth a read. Um, I will just do a little bit of a refresher on developmental biology because I must say mine was a bit rusty. (laughs) But I did a quick little revision session this morning before the show started. So an embryo, listeners will know, is the lump of cells that is created, that is formed a few days after fertilisation occurs between an egg and sperm. And that embryo is that early stage of development in humans and other animals as well. And the cells in the embryo go on to develop into every single cell in the human body. So they have the possibility and the potential to develop into any type of cell, including heart, liver, skin, brain, anything. When we're talking stem cells, so this is, Jess is a bit of a science nerd, but I was actually a developmental biologist in my (laughs) early life before I was a physio. So when we're talking stem cells, we talk about their potency. So there are lots of different stem cell treatments that are starting to come onto the market and they generally look at a cell line. So for example, you might have a hematic or hemopoietic stem cell, which can form all of the different cells of the blood So white blood cells, white blood blood cells, platelets. And we can drive that potential of those cells with genetic factors. Embryonic stem cells are unique in of themselves because they can form, they have the potential to form every single cell in a body, including um, eggs and sperm, which are... um, hard to create because of their genetic makeup being a little bit different as a half complement of chromosomes. So embryo stem cells are a very unique bunch of cells that we have found elusive to grasp thus far in research. And research in embryonic stem cells has been super exciting, caused a lot of excitement over the last sort of decades really mm. um, because of that potential for them to develop into any different cell type that opens up the possibility of enormous developments in not only understanding human development, how we go from a sperm and an egg into a fully grown human, but also the possibility of treating genetic conditions and other really tricky diseases by potentially creating brand new organs, uh, brand new parts of the body that are, you know, otherwise really diseased and not working properly. So, you know, the possibilities are enormous and that's why people get so excited about it. Um, However, it comes with a lot of ethical questions, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine. So a lot of this comes from sort of religious groups having really strong positions about when life begins and whether destruction of an embryo or those kind of early developmental forms constitutes murder. But outside those religious groups, there's also questions about, you know, when does life actually begin? Is it at conception when the egg and the sperm combine, when their genetic material combine to, to create the what's called the zygote, which then goes on to develop the embryo and the fetus? And 
and eventually a baby, all things going according to plan. Um, at what point do we call it a life? And and for those reasons, people have a lot of kind of unease about embryonic stem cell research. Are we researching on something that has the potential to become a human? At, at what time do we say life begins? Are we able to pinpoint that to a certain day, minute, hour after fertilisation? Or is it more grey than that? Is it when the heart starts beating? Is it when the fetus can start to feel pain? These are all questions that are raised by these kind of this early developmental biology research. And I don't think anyone has the answers to these questions because they're super complicated, really difficult. I think the other thing to consider is with this kind of research, there's so much potential in terms of how many lives will be impacted if we can get it right. And so you have to weigh up the contribution of, okay, for argument's sake, we're looking at an embryonic, very small embryo, which is, you know, smaller than a booger, let's be real. That's how I always used to teach my students. We're talking smaller than a snot booger, okay? And... Has that little bundle of cells and the fact that we can use it to research these really, you know, systemic problems questions. that, Im- you know, health implications for millions and millions of people across the world that we can A, improve quality of life or prevent disease or treat things like cancer or heart failure or, you know, organ organ disease. The possibilities are really endless. They're really endless. And so where does the you know, benefit outweigh the risk. The other thing to consider with this particular stem cells is that when you're looking at treatment with stem cells, you have to be incredibly careful. Lots of people make the argument, oh, well, we should just try it in willing humans. The problem with that is that because these cells have the capacity to make every cell in the body, they also have the capacity to make every kind of cancer that we don't know how to treat and every kind of you know, mutation of cell that these cells can turn into. So you can't just be dropping them into a human and going, all right, here we go, because that has the capacity to create diseases or cancers that we actually have no way to cure or treat in a living human being. With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. So, and it's even when we're talking about stem cells going down a particular pathway and driving them down really well-known Um, trajectories of cell differentiation, you have to be so careful because we don't know all the mitigating factors that can influence that um, maturation, which we know can be changed by environmental factors and things like that. Uh, It's a really complex issue. The other thing people always talk about is that we, we use embryos at the moment in other animals and we use them in other mammalian models often for research in terms of in this country alone we use mice rats rabbits we use lots of avian models we also use sheep cows monkeys and that's just in melbourne Mm. um and we use them not only as embryos but we use them up to living organisms so that's fully functioning animals where do we draw the line that those lives are more valuable or less valuable than the embryos that we're using that are not made of a direct human. They are coming from a cell line which has been created in a lab and is be, is not a baby of somebody's. It is a cell that has been turned on effectively rather than created via 
a mum and a dad. So these are all like the background questions, right? These are the background ethical considerations with normal embryos. And this news item has kind of raised a whole new, opened a whole new can of worms. So at the moment, research on embryos is really tightly regulated. Embryos are, human embryos for the most part are sourced from leftover, I use that in inverted commas, from IVF procedures. You can gift your So basically when a a couple or a person undergoes IVF treatment, sometimes they've completed their family or for whatever reason they have surplus embryos to what they need Mm. and those embryos can be gifted to scientific research. Um, And in, in those circumstances research is really strictly restricted to 14 days of development so it's considered that up to 14 days i'm not sure exactly the reasoning for this i think it's to do with how mature the embryo becomes at that time but it's it's got to do with how many cells so up until 14 days you're still looking at what's called the morula or the blastocyst uh, is the next stage so the blastocyst is a collection of cells which is defined by the particular number of cells um, and it hasn't matured up to a differentiated state. So when you've got um, basically the three layers of cells which define the germ layers of of the developing body, that's when they draw the line. And those germ layers become the different parts of the fetus eventually, including the brain, the gut, and the, the different organ Correct. systems. Yeah. So prior to that, it's really, a, you know, a, a booger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> booger little, bo- bo- little ball of cells. Little ball of cells. So this news item is that Professor Magdalena Zernika Goetz, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing her name, is a researcher at the University of Cambridge and the California Institute of Technology. And at a large conference a few weeks ago in the States, a large scientific conference, there's a little caveat that this hasn't been published in journals yet, so it's sort of pre-publication. But she discussed at this conference that her team have successfully developed embryos from stem cells rather than from a sperm and an egg. Mm. So essentially what that means is usually, as I said, an embryo will come from the IVF process where a sperm and an egg have come together, been allowed to develop into an embryo. In this situation, they've taken a cell from an embryo and then used that to make a new embryo. It's like reverse engineering. Exactly. And that's amazing because it opens up huge potential for, you know, observing the development of embryos and reproduction, all the things we've talked about. But there's an ethical question that it raises and that's that these these um, embryos that are created aren't actually considered true embryos they're called embryo models mm. because they behave and look a lot like a normal or kind of biological embryo but they're actually not a true embryo mm. and all of the guidelines that we've talked about the 14-day limit that doesn't apply to embryo models yeah. this is only a very quick comment but it's almost like cloning an embryo Pretty much. Sort of. So it's a little bit different. We do cloning in a lot of other sort of um, mechanisms, but with this, what you're doing, it's called um, de-differentiation. So you're driving a cell to be more potent. You're taking it back a step in terms of its its lineage. Um, and I think the other thing to consider is we use cell lines constantly in research to look at effects of medicines and things on particular types of cells is this the new frontier of cell lines? The other thing is with this research is these embryos, they aren't actually able to um, incubate them past a particular point of development. So they haven't actually managed to get an embryo to live in, from these cells past what would be considered um, early in the first trimester. Yeah. So 
it's not that they're able to so make a baby yeah, with there's these There's something cell going lines. on biologically that yeah, we don't right. understand yet yeah. that doesn't allow f- a pregnancy to sort of perpetuate beyond those very early stages. But mm. but what an interesting development and it's just, you yeah. know, another one, an example of where science and the law and ethics sort of struggle to keep up with each other and, and advances can be out of sync with each other and, and I just, you know, I love these sorts of discussions. Mm. We are out of time. But what a great show it's been. Miss Perineum, Dr Moto, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We've had great discussions about broken hearts and failing hearts and embryos and goodness me, what else could we possibly cover in an hour? Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.